0: of the hour. It's Friday night, but where do you have to go? Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. Thank you for being here with me, and welcome back to a bonus hour of prime time. So let's talk about treatment here. Big breakthrough, right? A drug that may shorten the recovery time for patients with severe COVID who are in the hospital. It's just been approved for emergency use by the FDA. That'll make it more available. The drug's name, all together, Remdesivir. Ramdesivir, faster. Ramdesivir. Now, you know, it. it's the first authorized therapy drug for this virus so far. It is our first tool in the box. A new report from top health experts is predicting this virus could keep spreading for at least another 18 months, maybe two years. Perhaps 70 percent of the population has been infected. And then there's the race for a vaccine. An administration official says President Trump's goal with Operation Warp Speed is 300 million doses by January. Possible? Yes. Probable. Let's discuss. Let's bring in Dr. Ashish Jha of the Harvard Global Health Institute and Mr. Andy Slavitt, former acting administrator for Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Gentlemen, thank you, especially on Friday night. Thanks for
1: having us. Thanks, Chris.
0: So Jha, are you feeling the remdesivir? Um, what is the level of enthusiasm we should have about this development and why? Uh,
1: so I am feeling enthusiasm. Uh, let's be very clear about what it is and what it isn't and what we know. It's not a miracle drug. Um, you don't just pop it and feel all better. Uh, but for critically ill patients, it seems to help. Um, and in you know, with good quality studies, a, a nice large randomized control trial uh, shows that it... Helps people recover faster and probably reduces mortality, though that part we're not sure of.
0: So I don't see this as a miracle drug, but it's a good step in the right direction. All right. And it's better than nothing, which is where we were before it. Andy Slavin, 300 million doses uh, that they are front loading uh, in anticipation that they have it right in terms of how to plan a vaccine uh, for this virus. Plus minus.
2: So there's a couple smart things here and a couple concerning things here. The smart thing is, you have to start manufacturing even before you have a drug. You have to be ready, because if you don't, what happens to the first 10, 20 or 30 million vaccines off the line? Where do we think they go? There becomes a black market. People behind the guarded gate communities get them first. So you have to be able to go at mass production. And I think the idea of a moonshot to get things done in January uh, is, is something I think we'd all say just terrific. But I think there's a hidden layer here, Chris, which is that for a drug company to say, I'm gonna rush my process, they're gonna ask for one thing that we should be very wary of. They're gonna ask for liability protection. In other words, they're gonna say, if we inject this drug in 300 million Americans and 100 million of them die, we can't be sued because you rushed us. So do we really want to inject a drug in the 300 million people without enough safety knowledge, or would we rather wait a few more months and make sure that it's absolutely safe. That's the question we're gonna All wrestle right, with if we're so that's a great question.
0: There. Great question, I hadn't thought of that. John, you're shaking your head, what's the answer? Hi, I'm with Andy on this one. Um, we wanna have uh, safety.
1: Uh, I think we can get there. I, I don't know if we're gonna be able to get a vaccine in January, um, but cutting corners on safety is a bad idea. I don't think it's gonna delay us by that much, maybe a little bit, uh, but it's worth it because we're gonna give it to a, a lot of folks Uh, including a lot of vulnerable people. And if it turns out not to be safe, we'll end up doing more harm than good. So I'm a big believer in the safety of vaccines. What we know, Chris, is when we go through the regular process,
0: vaccines are very, very, very safe. Uh, So if we do our job right, I think we can produce another safe vaccine. And I think you have to take some risk here. And here's why I am saying it that way. I don't mean be reckless, which is reopen when you don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm saying the opposite. Take the risk to make it right. Which means I don't get the moonshot mentality, Andy, on the vaccine, but not going all in on getting people to make the testing stuff and PPE here. When you know it's a matter of national security and you know you'll have the same supply chain issues in the fall because it's going to go through all the different places on the same longitudinal plane and latitudinal plane, why aren't we doing that if we're doing this?
2: Well, politically, why not focus on the longer-term problem that'll be judged in the long-term rather than the ones that you're getting judged on every day? I think that's a political move. And I would say another thing on the vaccine, Chris, I think we would all agree you've got to go bold, but part of going bold... Is taking a portfolio play and a portfolio approach so the who is developing uh, many many vaccine candidates the eu is paying for them all asia is paying for them all the us as you know is not at the table um if one of those 20 or 30 vaccines proves to be successful and if one of our leading candidates is not we do not have skin in that game so mm. there is a strategy here which we are choosing to go it alone to an america first strategy that is a potentially risky strategy. Bold, fine, but let's hedge our bets as well by getting our hands on all the potential vaccine candidates. I like it.
0: I like it because, you know, look, you can print the money and of course you're going to have tons of issues with currency and economic fallout. But to use the president's own logic, if you don't get this out of the way as soon as possible. You're not getting anywhere anytime soon. Um, but I guess it's that scared money never wins mentality, uh, Dr. Ja, that uh, brings me back to the tracing and testing. One company in Maine. Look, all love and respect to this company in Maine. Thank you for being the only one who's been able to step up this far and make a stick with polyester fiber at the end of it. But. I don't get it why they're not all in the same way with pushing manufacturing of what you know you need when it's so much easier to achieve than a vaccine. What's your take, Doc?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I don't understand the political calculus, and I'm not a political scientist. What I know as a doctor and as a public health person is that we need to substantially ramp up testing. The federal government has largely... Uh, Not paid attention to this topic. They come out every day and say we have enough tests when we know. Everybody knows. Governors, red state, blue state governors, everybody knows we don't have enough tests. And, you know, it's interesting, right? When the military decides they're going to really deal with something in the middle of a war, they have, you know, they have visibility into their entire supply chain. They don't they make sure the tanks show up at the battlefield. Uh, They don't say, well, you know, the guys didn't show up with the parts, not our problem. That's sort of the approach the federal government is taking on this. And I have to say, I have been completely baffled because lack of testing is what has caused us to shut down. Lack of testing is what has caused our shutdown to last as long as it has. Lack of testing is what's going to make it really hard to open up again.
0: It's really that simple. Well, let me help you on the political side. The truth of the scale of the problem is bad for the president in his estimation. Now, the miscalculation he's making is all these governors, left and right side of the aisle are popping in the polls like he can only dream about by telling the truth of the situation and the problems they have. So I think his calculation's been off. But Andy Slavitt, the idea that 100 senators are coming back on Monday and they were told there're not enough tests for all of them. I mean, do you need any stronger metaphor of the disconnect between the reality of where we are and
2: this president telling people we're ready to reopen? You know, I think there are certain things that were acceptable in March and April that are, should no longer be acceptable in May. And by that, I mean we were in a crisis. We were scrambling. People were doing the best they could. But to be here May 1st, when the Gates Foundation says that we could use much more common swabs than the ones that are specialized and come with the machines and only come from Italy or Maine. that we have, we have companies saying they can't invest in testing machines because they don't want to be stuck with them a year and a half from now when people don't need them, and have the governor sit and have the president sit by and not do anything. That's fine. You know. That may be in the middle of the crisis in March and April, but now we're in May. And in May, when you can't give 100 senators a test to come back and be in close contact with one another, that's a failure. That is a big failure and we should have higher expectations now that we've moved away from the early stages. Mm.
0: Ashish Ja, doctor, thank you. Andy Slavitt, brother, thank you. Appreciate you both. I hope you have good weekends and I hope your families are healthy and happy. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Chris. All right. Uh, you want to check something out that's interesting? Take a look at this. See this map? These are all the states that are starting to reopen this week all across the country. Question is, are some of these states reopening too quickly? How can that answer not be yes? None knows how many cases they actually have. They are all flying blind to different degrees. How is this okay? We're gonna take this on. And also coming up, we have two big city mayors from two different states that are both reopening, but with very different strategies. Okay, another window into taking a critical look at why are you doing this? Next. (laughs) Mayors, I am advocates for your cause. You're you're doing great, Jason. How how is you
2: and your Um, wife's health?
0: The missus powered through this like it was hay fever. Um, My son slapped it, slapped it away like it was a homework assignment he didn't want to do. I was crushed for weeks like a feeble weak link that I am in my family. So I pray and thanks every night that I was given the blessing that every family's father prays for. If it's going to happen, let it happen to me. Uh, and thank God the Misses and Mario got through it way easier than I did.
2: That's great. That's
0: so great to see. I wish you guys well uh, as the burden bears down. And as we get away from the easiest time, when it becomes about schools and second waves and all that, I swear to you, I will not fade. I will stay on this.
2: Well, we're going to start seeing numbers here in about seven to 10 days. And then we'll know.
0: If you want to give me a jump on the number, I'll give you the access. Sounds good. We'll do that. That's great. Mister show you.
3: is
0: You've really become right, must-watch Christine. TV. Thanks right, for what you're doing. Right. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. guys. Generous assessments. Be well, fellas.
2: Great John, to see you, to too, see Steve. You.
0: you, too, man. Take care. Yeah. Everything that every state wants to do is going to cause more cases. That's the reality. It is inevitable. The question is whether we can prevent a second, deadlier wave from happening. Now, our next guest knows firsthand just how bad things can get. He was practically right there, right? Right when it was going to be no going home. Nine days in a coma, hooked up to a ventilator. Well over 70% of people on ventilators don't come off. Darren Godden is here, along with Dr. Amy Compton Phillips. As you know, I am a big fan. Speak to her often about this. Oversaw clinical care at St. Joseph Hospital in Orange, California, where Darren was treated. They both join us now. Can you guys hear me and see me? Thanks for having me, Chris.
2: Chris.
0: Hi, Amy. I got to tell you. You know the expression, a bucket of sunshine? Uh, I mean, other than Coop uh, bringing home that baby boy, Darren, I got to tell you, when I read into your story, one, there was the selfish reaction of it, of there but for the grace. There but for the grace. Darren is young and strong, you know, um, that could have been me. For you to make it through, when you were in there and things were bad before you went into the coma, Tell me where your head and your heart were and how you were dealing with what you were looking at.
3: Yeah, well, Chris, for me, I, I actually, from the time I was admitted on March 17th in the emergency department, um, once the doctor read the, the chest X-ray and said that there's a distinct pattern to the coronavirus, and he said, it, it's there on the X-ray. I'm pretty sure you have it. We'll confirm it with a nasal swab. I, at that point, I think I just went into shock. I called my wife crying, Um, I called a friend, and from that point forward, I actually don't remember much. My wife tells me I was pretty depressed because I was isolated and alone, I was scared, and the doctor told me you're likely to get a lot worse before you get better, Um, but one thing I did not want to do is end up on a ventilator, but um, I just continued to get worse and worse that week, and by Saturday, I was admitted on a Tuesday, by Saturday, um, I was having more and more oxygen, couldn't breathe, and uh, the doctors decided that
0: Everything that every state wants to do is going to cause more cases. That's the reality. It is inevitable. The question is whether we can prevent a second, deadlier wave from happening. Now, our next guest knows firsthand just how bad things can get. He was practically right there, right? Right when it was going to be no going home. Nine days in a coma, hooked up to a ventilator. Well over 70% of people on ventilators don't come off. Darren Godden is here, along with Dr. Amy Compton Phillips. As you know, I am a big fan. Speak to her often about this. Oversaw clinical care at St. Joseph Hospital in Orange, California, where Darren was treated. They both join us now. Can you guys hear me and see me? Thanks for having me, Chris. Chris. Hi, Amy. I got to tell you. You know the expression, a bucket of sunshine? Uh, I mean, other than Coop uh, bringing home that baby boy, Darren, I got to tell you, when I read into your story, one, there was the selfish reaction of it, of there but for the grace. There but for the grace. Darren is young and strong, you know, um, that could have been me. For you to make it through, when you were in there and things were bad before you went into the coma, Tell me where your head and your heart were and how you were dealing with what you were looking at.
3: Yeah, well, Chris, for me, I, I actually, from the time I was admitted on March 17th in the emergency department, um, once the doctor read the, the chest X-ray and said that there's a distinct pattern to the coronavirus, and he said, it, it's there on the X-ray. I'm pretty sure you have it. We'll confirm it with a nasal swab. I, at that point, I think I just went into shock. I called my wife crying Um, i called a friend and from that point forward i actually don't remember much my wife tells me i was pretty depressed because i was isolated and alone i was scared and the doctor told me you're likely to get a lot worse before you get better Um, but one thing i did not want to do is end up on a ventilator but um, i just continued to get worse and worse that week and by saturday i was admitted on a tuesday by saturday um, i was having more and more oxygen couldn't breathe and uh, the doctors decided that that's what would be best for me. And so I was intubated, sedated. And like you said, I was on a ventilator eight, eight nights, nine days, um, eight agonizing nights for my wife. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was scary. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I don't remember much about it. But from the time I was told,
0: I just couldn't believe that I had actually gotten coronavirus. And you're in the hospital. She couldn't be there with you, right? No, no, I had
3: actually, um, I was just driving down to find a, yeah, I was, I was, I was driving down to find a testing location in Orange, California and uh, decided to, to also call at the same time to get a virtual visit with a doctor through uh, Providence express care actually. And I got connected with a provider right away and I pulled off the freeway, went through my symptoms with her, had 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 multiple days of a really high fever, the cough, um, different things that I was Mm -hmm. explaining to her. And she said, you need to go right away to the, emergency, to the emergency room. And I was like, no, 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 I just want to test. And she said, she said, no, you need to go now. She said, what hospital are you near? I said, St. Ho- St. Joseph Hospital in Orange. And she said, we're going to call them and let them know you're on your way. And it was all of that within about an hour's time from the time I was on that phone call to the time I got the, the news that uh, I had coronavirus. Any underlying health conditions? No, I'm 44, no underlying health conditions. I have no idea who I came in contact with it. Um, I can think back to the two weeks prior, um, different things I did, you know, from picking up coffee to stopping at a store, um, going to a lunch. It's hard to um, know, but I have no clue.
0: I have no clue where it's hard to know. So then you're in there. They put you on the ventilator. You're kind of out of it. Uh, Hopefully you didn't know how dire it is um, once you're on a ventilator. (laughs)
3: But that's a question I get quite a bit is like, oh, do you remember this? But um, when you're on a ventilator, they sedate you. They give you paralytic medication. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're in a coma and hopefully you don't remember anything by the grace of God and great nurses, um, they and great respiratory therapists. They took good care of me. I don't have any memory of that. Thank God.
0: Do you remember coming out of the coma and realizing that you were going to be OK? I do. I, I, I don't remember when they first extubated me and took the, the
3: ventilator off. Um, but after about, I don't know, maybe 12 hours, something like that, I started to uh, understand that people were looking in on me and I was in a room where there was a, a window and all the nurses and the staff would walk by and look at me and at first I kind of felt like I was in a, a fishbowl, um, but people would wave at me and they looked happy and I couldn't quite understand it, but I was gracious and would wave back as much as I possibly could um everything didn't work quite well after being on the ventilator but um it was the very next day that one of my nurses explained to me um when i was really frustrated why is my body not working why can't i you know lift my hands up that that sort of thing she explained to me that i had been on the ventilator for for 8 8 nights 9 days whatever um and she told me that the toll that takes on your body and and that i'd had coronavirus and so it was at that point that i was realizing i was really lucky to be alive and of course then i talked to my to wife,
0: wife and, uh, there it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the part you got.
3: <laughs> there, there, there was, got was lots life. of tears. And, and, you know, she she told me that literally thousands of people were praying for me around the world. I had friends that that harnessed a, a, a great army of people that were praying. I've since heard stories from nurses and respiratory therapists that uh, work there at St. Joseph Hospital that told me they prayed for me and they talked to me. They told me to fight. And uh, what incredible people. I'm just so thankful for the care I received there. And I'm thankful that in those times, my family couldn't be present because nobody's allowed in the hospitals right now. Um, Mm -hmm. That there were men and women who were not just providing me care, but they were caring for my whole person. They were caring about Mm -hmm. me as an individual. They cared about my family. They prayed for me. They told me to fight for my two little boys, for my wife. And um, here I am today. And I'm so grateful for that.
0: Boy, Amy, uh, you know, How lucky he is um, to have been in that circumstance and wind up being like a cherub right now uh, on TV. Um, When you look at the case and what you're seeing, what are the realities when somebody is in that? And how impressive is it that he is strong and on with us tonight?
4: Well, the reality is that uh, Darren was really close to death. And thank heavens, he is young. He is otherwise healthy. And so that really increases his odds. um, That it's not that young people don't get this germ. They do get this germ. But when they get sick, they're more likely to live through it. And so fortunately, through, through luck and great medical care and unbelievably kind people that work with Darren and his family in support of him. Um, he, he was able to make it through. And fortunately, um, younger people do have better odds of making it through than somebody who gets this later in life.
0: You know, um, Darren, you know, I've been hearing about you for a while. Mm -hmm. You became a symbol of hope for people whose families had loved ones who were Mm -hmm. in a hard way. And now the hard part for you to figure out is going to be what do you do with this chance that not everybody gets and so many don't and what it means about just how special your being on this earth is. What does that mean to you at this early stage? Yeah. Somebody asked
3: me, did you think, why me? And my answer to that is I haven't thought that, but I, I do realize I've been given this opportunity to share this story. I've had many families reach out to me already and, um, tell me that they have family members on ventilators and so forth. And, uh, luckily most all of them have been coming off the ventilator. Still one young man we're praying for, his name is Austin in Reno, California, 24 years old. He's a, uh, a nurse there in Reno. Um, fighting 15 days on the ventilator right now. And we're believing he's going to come off. But I, I really just feel like that's what God has given me. He's given me a story to be able to share and encourage other folks and give them hope. And I'm just, uh, like I said, Chris, so so grateful and thankful for all those who cared for me, that prayed for me. Um, Amy, you know, I, I worked for Providence St. Joseph Health for almost six and a half years. The entire Providence family was praying for me as well. My current employer, City of Hope Orange County, gave me such uh, grace and compassion during this time and, and showed that to my family and took care of my family. So uh, my wife Katie and I just feel like uh, we've been given this chance and this opportunity and our job now is to pay it forward. So um, everybody that's reached out to me so far, I've gotten a hold of them and, and just encourage them and let them know that we're not just praying, but I've shared different things that the doctors and the staff did for me, if those might be helpful. Um, I knew that St. Joseph Health was part of a larger health system and it gave me comfort to know that Providence had treated that first patient in Everett way back in, I think it was February or January, and um, right. I was hoping that behind the scenes, they were sharing information, and they were they were saying, hey, this worked here, try this on Darren. Um, I'm not sure if all that actually happened. Amy can probably speak to that better, but um, I, I'm, I'm certainly thankful for that, that I was where I needed to be, and um, even though I was early in Orange County, I was the first uh, COVID-positive patient at St. Joseph Hospital of Orange, um, I, I got the very best care,
0: and I'm just so thankful, and so... Pay it forward. That's my message for me. Amy Amy Compton Phillips has become synonymous with the best care. She was on this from the beginning. She was getting the country rallied around making masks and getting the word out. Uh, We're big fans of hers here because of the reality of her actions. Uh, But here are two things for you that you're going to have to deal with. One, you being in a coma was much tougher on your wife because you were out of it. So you didn't have to deal with the reality. But you're going to have to be doing some work there because you owe her. And you have two sons who know something that every kid dreams is true. Their dad is one of the toughest people that they'll ever be. You beat something that almost nobody beats the way you did. So take God's blessing, take the grace, pay it forward, but know that you have done something and you've given a gift to your kids of letting them see what it is to fight to the finish, even when the odds are against. I hope your blessings thank continue, you. and I thank you for sharing your story with my audience. And Dr. Compton Phillips, as always, it seems like you're always attached to good news. So thank <laughs> you for being with like it that way. Once. Yeah, me too. All right? Have a great weekend. And as always, Dr. Compton Phillips, when you need something, we're a call away. And Darren, you're now added to that invitation thanks chris appreciate it bye Amy. thank you i okay, told yeah. you can you imagine being in that position and can you imagine what you'd do with that newly lease on life sobering new report predicting coronavirus could last up to two more years why why is this thing so hard let's get some answers from one of the study's authors next A new study warns the pandemic could last as long as two years until more than two thirds of the population is infected. Why? It goes to the idea of herd immunity. Now, it was co-authored by John Barry, who also wrote The Great Influenza, which deals with the 1918 outbreak, which the president keeps calling the 1917 outbreak. And I'm not sure why. Welcome back to, pro, uh, to Prime Time. It's good to have you, John. Thanks. Good to be back. Do, is there anybody who calls it the 1917? I mean, is, is that, is that uh, when it started? And we just, why? You know, uh,
4: it's the strangest. I think it encapsulates too many things about him. Uh, you know, he just, if he makes a mistake, instead of admitting it, he just wraps his arms around it and thinks insists he can get away with it. Uh, so
0: unfortunate. Uh, the idea of it taking that long. Barry, you're a pessimist. Um, No way. Uh, We've never dealt with anything that went on that long in this country, uh, on this country like this. Not not, since 1918. And even then, we're much better off now. Uh, Why should we believe this?
4: Well, I mean, 1918 did take that long. Uh, So there was a pandemic in 1889 that lasted three years. Uh, You know, pandemics take a while to work their way through, Uh, even in 57 and 68 when we had vaccines. They still took a while. Uh, You know, if we get a vaccine, then what we said in the study is short circuited. Fortunately, the point really of the study is to remind people and everyone who does it wants a vaccine. I mean, every author of the study, there are four of us. I'm over 70. I certainly want a vaccine sooner rather than later, Um, but it may not work. You know, there are there are many pitfalls between here and getting a vaccine. So a little bit of reality checking and recognizing what could happen if we do not deliver a vaccine and prepare for that uh, so that we're not don't get the rug pulled out from under
0: us again. What is the key thing in terms of how we structure the strategy uh, that determines how long this takes? Well, you know, the irony is the more effective we
4: are in terms of social distancing so that uh, we don't get a huge spike, uh, the longer the process will take. By the same token, the more effective we are, the fewer people are going to die. Um, Mm -hmm. If you go back uh, a few weeks, seems like years, but it's really only a few weeks ago, to the early studies that were predicting uh, deaths in the United States of one to two million, if we did nothing, as this disease has persisted and as people have died, those numbers look more and more accurate if we had done nothing. Now, we did do something. We've intervened. Uh, those interventions have been successful, but we're getting overconfident. There's not a single state that has met the White House's criteria. Forget about the criteria from, from more skeptical, skeptical public health people. Uh, And yet they're reopening. Uh, You know, they're I'm afraid, you know, I hope I'm wrong, uh, but I'm afraid we're going to get some major upticks. You know, we can control that. We can prevent that if we do things right.
0: And doing right means doing less. And we are in a climate right now. Where people right. want to do more, John Barry, you did the right thing putting the piece out. Uh, people have to have the perspective of more than just the immediate appetite. So, thank you for doing it. I hope you stay healthy, and I look forward to seeing you again. Best for the weekend for you and the family. You too. Thanks very much. All right, great story for you on a Friday night. You gotta gotta keep it gotta keep it positive when we can. High school principal. Boy, did he go as big as the state of Texas that he's in. And that's why he's tonight American. (laughs) Ordinary people doing the extraordinary during the pandemic makes them an American. Texas high school principal making sure that graduation ceremonies, of course, they're going to be canceled. But he wants to make sure that seniors feel special and get their diplomas. Get this. In person, Verdi Montgomery is his name. He gets in his car and he drives to all 612 students' homes or jobs to meet up. It took him 12 days, 800 miles of road. He gave every single single graduation a Snickers bar. (laughs) Why? Because he's joked with all of them. One day they'll look back on all of this and snicker. What a memory. What a moment. What a man. Thank you for watching. Stay tuned. The news always continues here on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you
3: can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.